This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Kristen Winterstein, who is assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Houston and also a research fellow at UT's Institute for Historical Studies this year. And she specializes in the environmental history of Latin America. She's finishing up a manuscript called Protein from the Sea, The Global Rise of Fish Meal and the Industrialization of the Humboldt Current Ecosystem. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Okay, so tell us about this project. What is fish meal and why is it interesting? Basically, this is a story about the process by which one oceanic region, um, the Humboldt Current Ecosystem in the Southeast Pacific Ocean, became one of the world's most important fish producing regions during the 20th century. So the production of uh, fish from this region actually took the form of concentrated fish proteins, um, fish meal and fish oil, which were used primarily as an ingredient in animal feeds for chickens and hogs and more recently farmed fish. In this marine ecosystem called the Humboldt Current, I'll explain in a minute why it's called that, um, Arguably, the most important fish species is the anchoveta, which is its scientific name is Ingralis ringens. And um, today, the UN Food and Agricultural Organization classifies this as the most heavily exploited fish in world history. So as I was saying, this is not because it's being used as food directly consumed by humans. This is, in fact, because it is used primarily to produce um, fish meal and oil for animal feed. Um, And so this might be a surprising fact to most people who have never heard of fish meal or fish oil, especially to know that the supposedly most heavily exploited fish is used for this um, product rather than for direct consumption. One of the questions that interested me in this context was um, amidst all the debates in the mid-20th century, both in South America and more broadly, concerning world hunger and the need to improve the nutrition of the world's poor, why did industrial production in these countries, especially Peru and Chile, focus on harvesting these fish proteins for animal feeds, which was an export commodity? Within the relatively well-known narrative of the decline of global fish stocks, uh, this is a story about a hidden trade. So it's not the glamorous story of frozen fillets being airlifted around to top sushi restaurants. This is actually a rather unglamorous story of ocean resources being reduced. They're called reduction fisheries to their most digestible form for use as an agricultural input. Um, This is also a story in which the natural environment is a major shaping force. Um, These fish populations respond directly to shifts in ocean temperature, most notoriously those brought on by the recurring El Nino phenomenon. Um, And at certain points in this history, the El Nino phenomenon dramatically changed the nature of the industry and the geography of the industry as well. In the book, I also examine the experience of three specific cities in order to look at the local impact of this sort of global industrial um, food economy um, throughout the 20th century. You mentioned that a lot of this was an outgrowth of the post-World War II discussion about global hunger. How does the fish meal industry play into the search for a solution? Well... This is um, one of the questions that I examine in a particular chapter of the book. So specifically the emergence of fish meal and fish oil as commodities and how they fit into the global food economy. So 
I would say that fish meal and oil didn't emerge as commodities from discussions about world hunger, although I was wondering what the connection was. There was already a demand established in industrial agriculture by the end of World War II for these commodities as animal feeds. Okay, so what I found was actually that um, there is a direct connection to the industrial uses of whales and the creation of the market for this commodity for both fish meal and fish oil. So as many people know, um, whales used to be used to render their oil into um, industrially usable products. So whale oil was used to make soap and other types of um, products before these items were able to be synthetically manufactured. So when the whale populations began to decline in the Atlantic coast of the United States, um, some fishermen and industrialists began to use the menhaden fish as a replacement for whales. So they were reducing these fish down into oil that was um, able to be used in products such as paints and glue and other things that whale oil had previously been used for. Additionally, Whale meal, so this is the dried version of the whale um, the whale matter, where the oil has been removed, was used also as a fertilizer. Similarly, menhaden was being used as a fertilizer. So there are older indigenous traditions in which people would bury a whole fish alongside a seed. Mm-hmm. So this is true also in coastal Peru. And also in Japan, that this was a longstanding tradition to use fish as a fertilizer placed directly into the land that was being cultivated. So similarly in the Atlantic, and I I don't have a lot of direct research about other areas in the world, but it's probably true that in most areas that were on coastal regions where they were cultivating crops, people discovered that this was one way of fertilizing their crops. So um, during the 19th century, As industrial agriculture started to take shape, there was a need, for example, in Europe to produce greater quantities of food for populations where there had been problems with famine. And in the United States, of course, the population was expanding westward and um, people were beginning to figure out how to produce greater quantities of food using the resources that were available to them increasingly through international trade. So in Germany and the United States, Researchers set up agricultural experimental research stations, and among other things, one of their top priorities was to investigate what substances could be used in animal feeds to allow them to uh, grow and thrive in captive environments. So animals like chickens and hogs in particular They cannot manufacture from the food they eat um, all the types of amino acids that they require for their nutritional growth. And researchers discovered that by feeding them fish proteins, they were able to grow and thrive and have relatively healthy immune systems. Whereas normally, although scientists didn't understand the nutritional chemistry at the time, these animals would obtain their proteins from foraging. So insects and nuts or whatever else they would eat on the ground, seeds and etc. So when they're raised in captive conditions and fed uh, specially formulated feeds, these feeds have to include certain types of proteins. So at first, this was called the unidentified growth factor, the element and these proteins that the scientists didn't fully understand that was allowing these animals to grow and thrive in this environment, which was unparalleled by any other additive that they tried. Um, Still to this day, there is no known synthetic substitute for this substance. Your work focuses specifically on the Humboldt Current ecosystem. 
which is in South America off of the Pacific coast. What is special about that area that allowed this industry to take off in Chile and Peru? Yes, this is a very important part of the story. So the Humboldt current is significant to this industry because of its impressive biological productivity. So this is singular in the context of uh, the world oceans. Many scientists believe it is the world's most productive marine ecosystem. Um, this is in terms of biological productivity as opposed to biodiversity. It produces approximately 10% of the global fish catch and about 0.1% of the ocean surface. The characteristics of this area is that it is formed by a cold, nutrient-rich upwelling of water. So the water rises from the depths of the ocean. The ocean current flows northward from the Antarctic region and also upward from the ocean depths. When the current hits the deep ocean trench off of the western coast of South America, this is the location where the Nazca and South American plates converge that causes all of the earthquakes there. When the ocean current uh, flows up against the edge of the continent, it rises to the surface level, and this allows a high degree of primary productivity across the spectrum from plankton and krill to the larger predators that consume them, such as whales, tuna, hake, and other marine mammals. This region was important long before the production of fish meal and the rise of this industry in the 20th century. So um, in terms of the history of science, Alexander von Humboldt was the first person to measure it with a thermometer, which at the time in 1802 was um, a relatively new technology. So Humboldt did not discover the current and he did not claim to discover the current, but it carries his name, which is a point that's debated among some people whether he should or not. It carries his name because of this act that he measured the current. And the other thing that he did was he sort of recognized its significance in terms of global oceanography, that the warmer Gulf Stream in the Atlantic was already known at this point, which was significant to the passage of ships from Europe to the Americas. The, the Gulf Stream current affects navigation. This was a well-known phenomenon at the time when he traveled there in 1802, and an era when oceanographers were just beginning to think in terms of the global connectivity of ocean circulation. When he was able to measure the cold waters of this area, which were unusually cold for the latitude being in the tropics, he put it together with um, what he knew about the Gulf Stream as a sort of complementary warm current in the North Atlantic. This marine ecosystem off the coast of Peru is one of the most productive, as I mentioned, in the world, or perhaps the most productive, um, depending how you measure it. But there are also three other so-called eastern boundary current upwelling systems. Um, one is the California current off of the western coast of North America. Another is the Iberia or Canary current in the North Atlantic. And finally, the Benguela current off the western coast of Africa in the southern Atlantic. So the reason why the industry came to this area, specifically in the 20th century, has to do in part with its connection to the California current, specifically the sardine industry in California, which is well known from, for example, John Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Mm -hmm. So most people know about the sardine canning. And what they might not know is that fish meal and oil were being produced at the same time as um, the sardines were being canned. So in other words, the scraps that were not used by the canned product were able to be converted into fish meal and oil. And this was one of the first ways that this product was made. 
In fact, some scholars have claimed that, or at least one scholar has claimed that the production of fish meal, which was being used for fertilizer first and then animal feed, actually subsidized the production of canned fish because it was a more lucrative product for the industry, for the fishing industry. So in the 1940s, the sardine industry off of California collapsed. And many of the entrepreneurs, fishermen, and also the boats and equipment from their plants ended up transferring to South America. So in other words, some of the people went there um, to continue their work in fishing because they didn't have more work in California. Others sold their equipment and their boats um, to be used by entrepreneurs in South America. They came first and foremost to Peru, but also to the north of Chile to some extent. And so at the time when the California sardine industry collapsed in the 1940s, by this point, the research for using fish meal in animal feed was well established at that point by the end of World War II. And so there was already a demand for this product. So sort of the two things converging at the same time, both the market being already established and the need to find an alternative source for fish meal and oil after the collapse of the sardines. The second half of the subtitle of your book, it deals with the industrialization of the Humboldt current ecosystem. How did that industry progress? Okay, so in the 1940s and 50s, when the industry was shifting from the North Pacific to the South Pacific, Peru and Chile, among other Latin American nations, were looking to build up their domestic industry in a program called Import Substitution Industrialization. So the purpose of this was to industrialize domestically in order to reduce uh, dependence on foreign goods. And so fish meal and fisheries in general seem to offer an opportunity for import substitution industrialization because these countries were not previously fishing at an industrial scale. There were fisheries, there were coastal fisheries, but um, they were not developed at an industrial scale by this point. So they were only important to the local coastal communities, and there was very little infrastructure to transport and process fish on land. So um, this was an opportunity for these countries to industrialize, develop some of their infrastructure, and also bring in new technologies for extracting fish and for processing them. However, this only partly met the goals of import substitution industrialization because fish meal and fish oil, um, the processing of them, um, they're not creating any kind of high-tech product Mm -hmm. um, that would replace something they would otherwise import. And the value of this product on the global market was relatively low. So it was lucrative and more profitable than exporting fish fillets or things like that at the time, but it was relatively less profitable, for example, than other types of domestic industries that relied on more technology. Most of the labor employed in this industry is in the harvesting and extraction. There are relatively few workers involved in the um, fish meal and fish oil plants. So the most major, most important boom in the production of fish meal and oil occurred between 1957 and 1972, primarily focused along the coast of Peru. So there was a period of sort of unbridled investments and extractive activity along the coast there, also in the north of Chile, but it was most important along the coast of Peru. 
And this involved both local entrepreneurs as well as foreign firms, including some major pharmaceutical and agricultural firms in the U.S. today, um, such as Pfizer and Cargill and these other firms. All of these firms ended up leaving when signs of political unrest began later in the 1960s and early 1970s in both Peru and Chile. So the major decisive force sort of punctuating this history in this case is in 1972, there was a major collapse of the Peruvian Anchoveta. There's been a lot of debate over the years about um, whether this collapse in 1972 was due to environmental factors or due to over-exploitation of the fish species. In 1972, there was a major El Nino event, and as I mentioned before, the anchovy populations respond directly to the oceanic shifts associated with these um, atmospheric and climatic conditions. So when El Nino occurs, um, the coastal waters warm to a greater degree than they normally are, and the fish populations disappear. So they either produce less, they reproduce less, and they also go to other areas in search of colder waters. So for local people who are involved in harvesting and processing, all they know is that the fish are not in the, lo- the same areas where they normally fish. There was also, um, as I mentioned, throughout the 1960s, a period of sort of unbridled um, investment and in harvesting of these fish. And so it's also true that the highest numbers of fish were extracted in um, specifically 1970, right before this collapse occurred. And there had been warnings by scientists um, that this level of extraction could not be sustained. So it's really a combination of both the human activity and the natural factors, the climatic conditions that um, sort of conspired to create a major economic and environmental disaster. Of course, when El Nino occurs, this also wreaks havoc for all of the other animal populations um, who depend on these fish for food as well. So this is a sort of notorious story in the context of fisheries management. Everyone who learns about fisheries, this is a sort of textbook case of what happens when authorities are not careful about how they're managing fish populations and are not attendant to um, climatic conditions, which are poorly understood and fluctuate in ways that are hard to predict. However, one of the things that I'm looking at in this study is how does the story change if we expand the frame out just from this case in Peru, specifically to the rest of the marine ecosystem along the coast of Peru and Chile. So actually, later in the decade, there was a boom in southern Chile. Um, Chile eventually, around 1980, surpassed Peru as the primary producer of fish meal in the world based on a number of factors. One of the most important of them being that there was a sudden appearance of sardine populations off the coast of southern Chile. So the Peruvian anchovy Ingralis ringens is not the only species that's used for this um, commodity, but it is the most well-known in this context. So producers also used sardines and jack mackerel. Sardines is a sort of general term, but um, a couple of species that are very similar to sardines and jack mackerel to make fish meal. Sardines and anchovies in particular have a very interesting relationship where when one is abundant, the other is relatively more scarce. And then their populations sort of reverse. So when the anchovies disappear, there are relatively more sardines. And this is... um, called an alternating fisheries regime by scientists. So these, again, are biological relationships that were not well understood at the time and are still relatively 
poorly understood. So in the south of Chile, there was a boom in sardines. In Peru, they were not able to use sardines for fish meal production. There was a law against it. Um, this was to preserve the sardines for human consumption, for canning. However, they were producing fish meal using these sardines, but illicitly. So in the south of Chile, it was totally permitted to use these fish for um, fish meal. And also now we're in the era of um, the Pinochet regime, where there was a lot of encouragement of private industry to grow and using natural resources um, for export. Finally, then, there was also a boom in the jack mackerel populations. So between the sardines sort of earlier on in the decade and the jack mackerel populations, Chile was able to um, overtake Peru in production as the anchovy populations recovered. It took a very long time for the anchovy populations to recover. And finally, in the 1990s, they were back at levels where industrial production of fish meal could continue. And so this is a slightly oversimplified you know, narrative that's showing how production shifts from one region to the other. And um, unlike some other stories of natural resource booms and busts, there actually was some recovery economically and ecologically. This has to do in part with the very particular biological nature of these fish. So where they respond very directly to oceanic conditions in terms of population decline, they also are sort of designed, so to speak, to recover. This brings me to one of the lessons of the story, which is it's important as historians to think in terms of cycles. So this is a story where I don't want to suggest that human action, that human exploitation of marine species will not ultimately affect those species. What I'm trying to do is complicate the narrative of environmental decline or decline of fisheries. It's not really just a straightforward direct line, you know, that you might get if you read something like Mark Kurlansky's cod book. Um, so when we're looking at these species um, that are used to produce fish meal, it's a very dynamic story. So there is, on the one hand, there is a long-term trend towards decline if humans are not careful about how they manage and extract them. But on the other hand, throughout the story of this, there is a lot of fluctuation in the environment and um, humans' responses to environmental conditions that creates a sort of more complicated narrative where there are booms and busts in successive locations along the coast and they're related to each other. And in some cases, people and equipment are moving between them, but they're not necessarily resulting in a ghost town that's totally abandoned at the end. So the three cities that I look at are Chimbote, Iquique, and Talcahuano, and each of these cities sort of began in a boom stage, but also eventually continue to produce fish meal to various degrees. So they've all managed it in a slightly different way. But it's not a sort of a simple story where first it was booming in Peru and then collapsed and moved to somewhere else. It's sort of boom and bust cycles. Well, and that's certainly a, a tale for our age as population gets larger and we are looking for new ways to figure out how to feed everybody. I'd really like to thank you for being with us uh, for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. 
The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15 Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.